0: Good afternoon. My name is Ali Gyasi and I'm a director of the Canadian Club Toronto. While we meet today on a virtual platform, I would like to begin by acknowledging the Indigenous peoples of all of the lands that we are on today, which we each call home. We do this to reaffirm our commitment and responsibility in improving relationships between nations and to improving our own understanding of local Indigenous peoples and their cultures. We are grateful for the opportunity to be able to come together to learn on this land. Guests, thank you for joining us today. And thank you to our AV supplier VVC Live for making it possible for us to gather virtually today. How many of us consider ourselves caregivers? That could be taking care of an aging parent, providing personal support to an elderly family member, or being a companion to a senior. The Ontario Caregiver Organization points out that with fewer nurses and personal support workers in the system, more of us are taking on the caregiver role. The service delivery and advocacy organization, Home Care Ontario, says that our home care system is in crisis. Today's panel discussion addresses these pressing issues and will provide hopeful actions. Just before we get, we begin, I want to review a few housekeeping instructions. Please take note of the following to ask a question. Click the question tab on the right hand side of the video player. There will be these will be sent to the moderator. The help button located in the bottom right corner of the page is for technical. support. I want to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, Home Care Ontario and Boom Help for helping to make this event possible. And thank you to our season sponsor, the Canadian Bankers Association, for its continuing support. The Canadian Club is a nonprofit and we have been gathering people together for 125 years. It is because of our sponsors, partners, and members that we are able to do so. So thank you for your support. Now to today's guests. We will hear from the Honorable Charmaine Williams, Ontario's Associate Minister of Women's Social and Economic Opportunity, an MP from Brampton Centre. And then we will be joined by an expert panel Amy Kupal, CEO, the Ontario Caregiver Organization. Dr. Tom Stewart, partner and chief medical officer at Deloitte. Sue Vanderbent, CEO, Home Care Ontario. Today's discussion will be moderated by Carly Weeks health reporter for the Globe and Mail. And we are honored that you all have all joined us today to discuss this important issue. And one more thing before we start. A tradition that our club maintains is the toast we make to our country. If you have a beverage close by, please join me in a toast. To Canada.
1: Canada.
0: Canada. Canada. Minister Williams, over to you for opening remarks.
2: Hi, everyone. Thank you. Can you all see me? (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. It's really an honour to be here today. And uh, you have an amazing panel. And it's just always an honour to be talking about the issues that really impact all of us as Ontarians. And as Ontario's Associate Minister for Women's Social and Economic Opportunity, I have a passion for championing women of this province. Our government's vision is for women across the province to thrive everywhere, at work, at home, and in their careers. And today I would like to share some information about how we are building Ontario together by increasing economic opportunities for women so that more women can excel as entrepreneurs in senior leadership roles and in sectors where the need is greatest. Increasing women's participation in the workforce is critical to helping more women achieve financial independence and prosperity. Fostering their financial independence can also give vulnerable women at risk of gender-based violence more options and choices to stay safe because they are connected to healthy support systems which will allow them to rebuild their lives sooner when faced faced with life's challenges. Women are also critical in helping to address the many of the pressing labor shortages facing our province, particularly in tech, skilled trades and construction sectors. Those sectors where women are highly underrepresented. Attracting and retaining more women in high demand sectors, women's wages and household incomes improve health, economic and social outcomes for women's and families, and contributes to Ontario's growing economy. The bottom line is that when women do well, their families do well, which strengthens our community and our economy. But there is more work to be done to bring women into the forefront of our economy. And one small thing that we've done in our ministry is change the name. The ministry used to be called Women's Issues. Now, I don't know about you, but my issues are my husband's issues. I believe we're all in this together. And so we're really changing the focus and focusing on women's economic development because it's so helpful for families. And I've seen this in my career in social services for about 20 years, working with families and predominantly women, helping them get on their feet. It is access to that ability to pull on their their employment skills that really has helped women be able to rebuild their lives. Women today still face barriers to being hired, retained, and promoted, especially in traditionally male-dominated occupations. According to Stats Canada in 2022, more than half of women age 15 and older provided some form of care to children and care-dependent adults, paid and unpaid. So, regardless of whether they are cared for children, they care for children or adults. Women are much more likely than men to provide care. And it does not take much to much imagination to conclude that women's responsibilities as caregivers represent a significant barrier to her workforce participation and her earnings. These barriers are even greater for Black indigenous and other racialized women. To that effect, my ministry offers targeted training, skills development, and employment programs for women. And one of the initiatives that I am very proud of is the expansion of the Investing in Women's Futures Program to 33 service delivery locations across the province. This program provides a safe space and wraparound supports for women who are experiencing social and economic barriers. Another initiative I'm incredibly proud of is the Women's Economic Security Program which provides skill-based training to low-income women in high-demand sectors. It features training streams for general employment, information technology, skilled trades, and entrepreneurship. And it's invaluable in helping more women gain the necessary skills, knowledge, and experience in these areas. These supports are designed to help women enter or re-enter the workforce, achieve financial security, and independence and provide for their families. And these programs are backed by real results. In 2021 to 2023, the Investing in Women's Futures Program and the Women's Economic Security Program helped more than 3,600 women start their own business or pursue for future training and education. And during that time, the program has helped more than 14. Thousand women by providing flexible programs and services, including gender based violence supports, life skills, and employment training opportunities. Now, the number of women entrepreneurs in Ontario is also growing. However, they still face barriers to accessing financial services and supports. Providing increased support for women entrepreneurs will help women start and grow businesses in Ontario. And in the next coming days, I will be sharing some exciting updates that will build on the success of the Women's Economic Security Program. I love that program. Women come out with jobs at the end of that program. Their childcare is taken care of, food, transportation, the things that make it very difficult for women to engage in being successful at finishing these programs. We're making sure we provide those supports. Now, I, I just think that you know I, I'm a mother. I have five kids myself, and all of my kids are above the age of six. However, you know when I was when when we were talking about how can we get make sure that childcare is accessible, um, I was right there advocating to make sure that we have the Canada wide early learning childcare system, and. Ontario was able to sign a $13 billion deal with the federal government, which is the largest contribution um, given to any province. Happened right here in Ontario. Now that historic agreement will support Ontario in achieving the average childcare fees of $10 a day for children under the age of six by 2025. In fact, as of January 1st of this year, childcare fees had been reduced by 50% saving Ontario families an average annual average of $6,575 per childcare space. And the financial accountability officer found that these costs have increased the labor participation rate of mothers with young children between the ages of zero to five from 76.5% in 2021 to 78.9% in 2022, so a 2.4 increase in just over one year under our government. And that jump made in 2022, I know you might be surprised when I tell you this, but that is the highest year on record since 1976 for core age mothers participating in the job market. So childcare is a major factor that contributes to why women have difficulty engaging in work. This marks massive improvements in, in affordability for Ontario families and with even more savings on the horizon, the future looks pretty bright. So as we know, child care is, an essential, is essential for women and women who are caregivers. Women predominantly provide care to elderly or sick family members. So that makes me think that improved home care can play a simple as Saint play a similar role to better supporting women in the workforce, the same way improved childcare. And as Ontario's population ages, we are focusing on how we arrange publicly funded programs and service, services to meet the demand of an aging population. And we know that people and their families want better and faster access to home care services. And it's been said before that the only thing better than having care close to home is having care in your home. And our government is committed to supporting convenient, connected and high quality home and community care for patients and caregivers. And starting in 2022, our government began investing one billion more over three years to stabilize and expand home care. The government is now accelerating investments as part of the 2023 budget to bring funding up to 569 million, including nearly 300 million to stabilize the home and community care workforce. And just last month, Deputy Premier, Sylvia Jones introduced the Convenient Care at Home Act 2023, which if passed would make Ontario health teams responsible for connecting people to the home care services they need starting by 2025. It will also establish a new single organization called Ontario Health at Home that would take on responsibility for coordinating all home care services across the province through Ontario health teams making it easier for families, to people to connect to home care services they need. To support this work, we are investing over 128 million to provide each Ontario Health team with 2.2 million over three years, enabling easier transitions in care with one patient record and one care plan between providers. Ontario Health at Home Care coordinators could work within Ontario health teams and other frontline care settings to provide people with easy-to-understand home care plans and facilitate seamless transitions for people from hospital or primary care home services. Through these changes, home care will be easier to find and navigate. Transitions from hospital to home will be more convenient with easy-to-understand home care plans for patients. And it will ensure that our seniors have access to dignified care as they age, close to their loved ones and their communities. I believe that through this work to modernize home care, we can better support women's participation in the workforce. And I look forward to our discussion on this topic. Ontario needs women to thrive and succeed because I say this all the time and I believe it with everything in me, that when women succeed, Ontario succeeds. Thank you so much for listening to Mm me.
3: Thank you so much for those um, really inspiring remarks. Um, I often wonder, you know, I'm a health reporter and I don't cover the childcare beat, but it does seem to me that we don't celebrate nearly enough kind of how life changing uh the lower fees have been and i often wonder if it's because it's an issue that affects a lot of women we don't hear enough about women and the benefits for women and as if someone with a child in, in in daycare you know it's uh it's i can speak to how lower fees help um especially people who are struggling people who um this is going to continue to allow more people to enter the the workforce so it's kind of a nice optimistic tone to enter into this discussion that is, you know, frankly, quite challenging as well, right? We're, we're in um, a place where so many millions of uh, Canadians are sort of invisible caregivers um, struggling and, and trying to figure out how to navigate. Um, and there's implications for the economy, for employers, you name it. Um, so I'm really pleased that to, to be moderating this panel and, and getting to you know hear from the wisdom of Amy and Tom and Sue today. I thought I would just start by by maybe tossing this out to the group and, and maybe Sue, you can start us off. Um, we're already in a place where so many people are, are, you know, struggling to provide care for their loved ones. And we know that this is an issue that's going to continue uh, to likely, you know, become an even greater burden as, as the population ages. So this is a large question, but, you know, how prepared are we for this new reality that we are faced with?
1: Thanks for that question, Carly. Well, as a home care longtime home care advocate, I would say we need to do a whole lot more to get ourselves prepared uh, for the situation where you know in in five years the number of people over the age of ninety will triple. Uh, we are we are seeing an aging aging population. Um, And that is only going to increase over the next 20 years. So Canada as a nation um, is one of the, uh, it has one of the highest rates of institutionalization in the world for people over the age of 65. Uh, And we have to take a, a whole different view, I believe as a country and as a province, to keep people at home. We need to invest in our home care system exponentially, we're very pleased. We, You probably remember that there was a historic $1 billion investment by uh, Minister Jones uh, last year and we're very grateful for that, but we have to have a billion next year and a billion the year after that, if we're gonna get ahead of the curve here in terms of the demographics that we face. And it's not what people want. People want to live at home, receive care at home and end their days at home. And we've done polling to show that's absolutely what people want.
4: And Carly, I might double down on Sue's great comments there. You know, um, if we, we've all just lived through SARS and you can see a relatively modest stressor on on the system. I mean, it was big for all of us, but a um, relatively modest stressor crippled the system. And particularly for those that were aging that were even more vulnerable. So it's just a sign that we're not prepared for the future if the growth rate is is as expected.
5: Carly, I would build on uh, what uh, Tom and Sue have just said and also highlight that For people who are caregivers now, they are experiencing these pressure points today. And Mm -hmm. so I totally agree that there is an exponential effect that's unfolding over the coming years. But the the gaps and the challenges are existing in that lived experience for people who are receiving or seeking care at home and their caregivers.
3: Thank you so much for that. And I'll remind everyone who's listening, please send in questions. We're going to try and get to as many of those as we can. you know, and Tom, it looked like you were going to say something, but I'm going to toss a question to you as well. I think what one frustrating thing is that we've been talking for so long about, well, you know, we need home care and we need to better prepare and so much money is being spent. Um, You know, why aren't we in a better place? And then feel free yeah, just to answer that and add the promises you're going to.
4: Yeah, you know, you, you get where you put your money, you get what you measure, and you get what you put your energy behind. And so one of the things is in my opinion you know if i think of he- the whole health social system ecosystem um you know we've really focused on acute care and 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 that primary care that interface with that or original interface and you, historically that's with a doctor nowadays we're talking more and more healthcare workers and other players in that space but everything else in between we haven't invested in like a perfect example and and sue would be able to speak to this more you can have someone train the same and they're, they're going to make more if they do the this, a, a job in, in a hospital a little bit less, but more if they do it in long term care and certainly a lot less if they do it in home care. And it do, d- just absolutely doesn't make sense. And so I do think there are a whole bunch of uh, potential solutions and other countries have led the way and, and started this even many years before us prepared for this and and we have pockets of of preparation across canada but i do think that the one of the big solutions one of the big things that we should be doing is thinking about governance of the whole system the ecosystem and having it work together and you know so when i think about the future of health the the, really the big paradigm shifts are how do you integrate care across silos of care and 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 in doing that how do we um, really start to unleash the full potential of the system? In addition, the other paradigm is just getting upstream and and getting more preventative as opposed to waiting to people who are super sick and going to hospital. Uh, But, you know, on that point, I just want to give an example. Uh, My father, who is now 92 and a healthy 92, when he was 85, by luck, he discovered he had an early tumor in his lung and, and had to have that removed. And he got through the operation, very thankful for the team that did it. And it was Friday and it was time to send him home. Being a physician, I know sending someone home on the weekend or on holidays is a little bit concerning because, at least historically, we wouldn't have the supports on the weekends and holidays to be able to receive him and and make sure there's good continuity of care. While he was in the hospital, he met his home care team. And he got a number from them and said, 24-7, you can call this number. We have all your information. So in other words, they had one team, one number, um, and one record so that they all knew what was going on. When he got home, he had a complication with his wound. Me being the doctor said, you need to go back to Emerge. If you send an 85-year-old back to Emerge, And they end up in hospital, there's a good chance they'll get some deconditioning and potentially end up in long-term care or certainly in rehab. And that is a vicious cycle. By having one number to call, people were able to take a picture, connect to the doctor directly because it was one team much more fulfilling for the home care worker. And they were able to make a decision in his home, told him not to worry and told him what to do. And he was able to live and thrive at home. And fortunately, he's a healthy 92-year-old at home. So that's what I mean by integrated care. That's what I mean by joint governance. That's what I mean by working together.
3: Um, We're all going to need that phone number before the end of this. Okay. The secret number, but I mean, (laughs) there's, and I think, you know, there's plenty of, of good examples. You know, we've, we've, especially the media to blame, you know, we we do talk a lot about the system failing, but there are a lot of examples of, you know, showing the way and how things can be better and how we can support caregivers and, and have people properly compensated to help support the people who are doing it on a sort of an unpaid basis. Um, You know, (laughs) There's a number of different things I want to get to. I thought first, though, Amy, I I wanted just to, to jump to you. You know, um, Tom, that's such a striking example. And it's so great to hear that your dad's health as well. Um, that kind of option may not be available for everyone. Right. And, and I think it's certainly not. And especially the people who are not part of the conversation nearly enough. Um, You know, people who are sort of struggling to make ends meet, people who are living in, um, you know, racialized areas, newcomers to Canada, don't speak the language, can't navigate the system. I mean, you name it, right? Um, So when we look from that sort of equity perspective, it's an even greater challenge, right? You know, Tom's example is a, a perfect way
5: of highlighting the way things should work on a consistent basis for everyone, And one of the things that we hear from caregivers regularly is, how come I hear about this thing that's available over here that I don't have over there? And so I think it's important to look at excellent evidence-based examples that we have. And I'm sure there's great evidence in support of the lived experience that Tom just described and say, how do we replicate and scale these things? That's what caregivers want. They don't want to hear about something that's happening outside of their community that they wish they had. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that many caregivers, if they have the financial means, are closing the gap on, on their care needs and paying out of pocket for home care for a variety of caregiving needs that they have. And what we hear at the Ontario Caregiver Organization is that the financial impacts of that on caregivers are growing every year. And of course, that's only for people who can afford to do that. And we hear from caregivers who say, I can't afford to buy groceries, I'm going to lose my home, or I don't have the means to access paid services and supports. And so the equity considerations, I think, are really considerate. And and, and we need to think about how do we make these things available? across our country for all caregivers, whether they are in urban or rural settings, regardless of their socioeconomic circumstances, so that everybody has that reliable care available to them in their homes where they do want it.
3: So I'm hoping you might be able to add to that um, to that response. Um, and just this no. whole, you know, um, you know, it's 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 enormous challenge. No. I do have some examples of things that can work. I mean, yeah. how do we start to move the needle? Yeah, um, share your thoughts.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I really appreciate Amy's remarks, um, and I'm glad she raised it. You know, this association has a broad membership. I proudly represent uh, both publicly funded and family funded members across Ontario. I also represent technology partners who give us lots of solutions to help people remain at home. And given the tsunami that I first talked about, because there's millions and millions of people, like Tom's dad, um, and all the people that Amy talks to, who are going to need this care as as we move forward. So, you know, on the publicly funded side, I, I don't think there's a more ardent Um, advocate than I am maybe there is but and my good colleague Deborah Simon at OCSA is also amazing Um, but um, you know obviously uh, we are small voices Uh, I would say there's been a lot of support from Anthony Dale at Ontario Health Association or sorry, hospital association, and many, many others about the need for more publicly and family funded care. So we need more funding in the publicly funded system, that's absolutely necessary. And on the family funded side, we know that there, these are very middle class families that are struggling with the dilemma of helping their moms or dads or brothers or sisters or their sick children because you know uh we actually look 15% of our patient population are children 20% are adults with significant illnesses like COPD CHF and 5% are palliative so you know we're not just looking after seniors we are looking after a range of people but um you know we need tax credits To help families, I mean, we need to push hard on the publicly funded side, and I do that every day. We need to get more money into the publicly funded side of the the equation, and we also need tax credits. In Ontario, we have a $1,500 tax credit for people who who actually fund their care uh, for their moms or dads or loved ones. In Quebec, it's $9,000 a year. So we're not doing enough on either side to help people have options. It's the options people need and people choose those options based on their particular circumstances. So we have to have a broad, broad brush in terms of this mantra that, that I keep saying, which is people want to live at home they want to receive care at home, and they want to end their days at home. That's the full scale of of the human experience. And we better start listening to to the reality of what's happening right now, which is that we're not providing nearly enough on any level.
4: And, you know, Carly, back to the way we started with um, Minister Clark, I'm very interested in that you know How much of this hidden workforce is out there? I've heard stats, these are 2019 stats, that $60 billion worth of value is provided by families or friends to help people age at home. And in the States, it's half a trillion dollars. And, and that's just grown since. And I just think, well, what the reason is? Why is that? Because You know, I think many people in their heart want to be part of the solution. And particularly when we're retired, like everyone has a need to have someone to love, something to do, something to believe in, something to hope for. Participating in helping people age well in their homes, including cutting grass or whatever it is. Like, I think a lot of people in a neighborhood like to do it. And, you know, I just wonder why we've gotten away from knowing our neighbors so well. I once heard someone say, that the the invention of a refrigerator prevented us from going to the market every day. So we don't see our neighbors as well. And, and, and as a result, we don't know them as well. And we don't know who needs and wants some support, which many of us would feel better giving. So I just think a couple points in there, Sue's comment. I don't think we can afford not to pay people to support their families or their neighbors to support them, because it's so much more cost to institutionalize people or have them get sick enough to go to acute care.
5: I think you've surfaced a number of important points, Tom. And one of the things I wanna highlight that, that I think we should talk more about when it comes to aging in place is loneliness and isolation. And I think that this is the case for the individual receiving care. And we also hear this consistently for caregivers. They feel lonely. They feel isolated. We see those burnout numbers growing every year. We see the number of caregivers saying they're worried they can't keep going, growing every year. And I think it comes back to what you just talked to, Tom, about this disconnection caregivers are fighting for recognition across all milieu in a way, right? They're trying to get that recognition as a part of the care team. And because they may have to start that process with each care provider that they interact with in hospital and in the doctor's office, wherever it is, it becomes exhausting. And then it's hard to keep going. And they have to balance their caregiving with work, perhaps children, perhaps other community responsibilities, and the burden continues to grow. And so, you know, recognizing caregivers People recognizing that they are a caregiver, which is still an ongoing project that we're undertaking to say, hey, that thing that you're doing with your mom or your dad or your brother, your sister, your neighbor, whatever it may be, that's caregiving. And we see you, we recognize you, and there are supports out there. If we break down some of those barriers and break down that isolation, I think that that will make a huge difference. This is is happening in our communities, but we don't talk about it often enough.
4: I love the comment on loneliness and Sue, I'm sorry to jump in, but I'll let you talk after the photo. I really love the loneliness conversation and I'm really struck by, as I drive around, I often look into homes and think what's going on in there. I've heard stats like one in 12 Torontonians have no one to reach out to um, and no one to ask for help. I mean, so obviously loneliness goes to it. The other thing as a physician I've heard you know how we eat when we get hungry, we drink when we get thirsty. Loneliness is a sign we need sign. It's an aversive thing that's been programmed into our bodies that we need community. And we have to start thinking that way um, because the literature would say loneliness is as bad as hypertension, diabetes, obesity, cigarette smoking, drinking too much as a risk factor for chronic disease. And so we as a community start, need to start embracing that knowledge and start acting on it like we would with cancer or diabetes and other things and start thinking about it. I, you know, interesting five years ago in the UK, they appointed a minister of loneliness to give a global view across sectors, across governments of how we should tackle this. And from that would include things like strategies around home care and community or naturally occurring retirement communities. So that's my comment. Sorry, Sue, to interrupt there.
1: No, I I think those are really good comments. And, you know, just to level set a bit for you, Carly, um, you know, our home care system right now needs to grow exponentially, both publicly and uh, family funded. But at this point, we have three major roles. right? We provide post-acute medical and surgical care including care to complex patients. We support people with chronic illness, in chil- including children and uh, who are both at home and in schools. And we care for Ontarians, frail and elderly patients, including palliative and end-of-life care. Uh, 60% of the patients that we look after are seniors. 20% are adults with long-term illnesses like COPD, CHF, etc., uh, 15% are children. Often those children are children who have had uh, birth effects at their, at their births. Uh, and they are long term patients at home. And we've seen uh, stories where the Toronto Star has shown pictures of people who are looking after a child who is literally almost in an ICU bed at home. And then 5% are palliative. And we do a hemodialysis in the home, respiratory care in the home palliative and managing lots of like high-end problems related to skills related to pain and symptom control. We have every kind of provider, nursing, home support, personal care, physio, OT, social work, dietetics, speech language pathologists, respiratory therapy, infusion pharmacy, medical equipment and supplies, And we don't just go into people's individual homes. We go into the shelters, we go into the other areas of of need in terms of every large city and and rural and Northern part of the province, Uh, in terms of reaching out um, and working with others. Like it's a very comprehensive and broad system, uh, both on the publicly funded and the family funded side um, that, that is the safety net. It's the safety net, as Tom said, for the for the uh, acute care system. Because when your dad went into the ER, maybe sat there for ten hours with you, and maybe got admitted uh, for the next, you know, day or so on a stretcher in the hall. That's a that's a terrible use of our home care of our health care dollars. We need to have a more direct relationship with primary care. The home care system and primary care system are like this. Uh, they work together. Um, you know, I've had family doctors phone me and say, why, why am I having to go out and, and hang an IV bag? Because we don't have a, a home care nurse to go out and do that. And that's because of another problem that we have, which is we need digital technology. That supports people, you know, so that we know. Right now, Stu Vanderbilt um, is is having troubles. You know, we have we have the technology in the home to say, "Your mom has fallen. Um, she needs help now." You know, we don't have somebody at work who's constantly calling her dad or her mom to say, "I'm, you know, are you okay? Are you okay? with you taking your pills at lunchtime?" So, like, we need to start thinking about the broad problems of society in terms of living and aging and ending your lives at home with all the supports that we can muster both publicly and family funded. Um, You know, like I just feel that we are missing the boat because we, we always revert to an institutional model, which is hospitals and then ALC beds and then Long-term care, uh, ultimately, and you know we have great long-term care homes, but uh, you know the fact is, many, many, many people, thousands, millions, could stay at home if we had this comprehensive home care system that everybody's talking about and is asking for. Doctors, hospitals, and and you and everybody on this listening to this call. And I and wonder. Just-
4: oh, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to add in this, very briefly. You know, we're all struggling with the burnout and with healthcare workers, including home care. Um, back to Sue's point, when people work in teams or they feel they can solve the problems of their uh, patients they're visiting or the residents they're visiting, they feel more edified. They enjoy working on the team better um, because they're part of a team. So when you know the vast majority of people that work in that integrated approach supported by digital as as Sue pointed out, feel happier.
5: And I think Carly, you're you're hearing a real theme around the connectedness of the problems, but also the connectedness of the solutions. So we have of caregivers telling us that they are taking on tasks that would have previously been done by a nurse or a personal support worker. That is a cascading effect of some of the health human resource crisis that we're seeing today. And then you hear the challenges that people have in working in their healthcare teams that Tom has just highlighted. So in the same way that the challenges have this cascading effect, the solutions do too. And this is where I think it comes back to co-creating those solutions within communities in a very multidisciplinary way. And of course, recognizing that the caregivers are a part of that multidisciplinary team. We are an essential care partner in that team, whether that's around community connections, whether that's around hospital or long-term care. And if we see an individual as being a whole person who may navigate through many different aspects of the system, home care, primary care, Hospital when they need it, then then we can generate solutions that make that work. And we don't have situations where people are using emergency departments as a form of respite out of sheer desperation. And we do hear those kinds of examples. But if we look at this in that networked, connected way, we can avert those kinds of challenges.
3: That's such a fantastic point. And, you know, I often wonder, you know, we we do hear so much about the challenges facing emergency rooms. But if you really start to pull at that and ask what's going on. I mean, so much of the pressure facing emergency rooms are the fact that hospitals are really, you know, trying to deal with the patient population that is dealing with chronic illness, people who are no longer able to safely stay home because they don't have the support, you know, family members that are like at their wits end. And um, I think sometimes, you know, we we focus so much on the that end point, which is the hospital, because that's where, you know, we see the patient showing up and someone who's in an emergency, is you know facing an an exorbitant or excessive weight because of that, but we don't say let's back up. How did we get here? Um, and I think those are you know from what it sounds like those are more of the conversations we have to have. Like if you're supporting someone who is at home, you're giving them all of the you know the you're you're, you're fairly paying a personal support worker to do the things that needs to get done. You know so much could be solved, right? And it's um, basically it sounds so counterintuitive, but not just focusing Spending on on hospitals um, in the way that we
1: have, I think, up until now.
4: Yeah, and you know, and Carly,
1: I agree. Uh, sorry, I I, I just want to step in uh, and say that is so true. Uh, we we are making choices as a society, right? We are making choices to fund acute care and other parts of the system. We are not making choices to really fully fund. Home care, and again, I, I want to thank the you know government for starting the trend. And investing a billion dollars was a huge marker in terms of some clear government recognition that we have to do more to keep people stable at home. And then we start to start looking at like what's happening internationally. In Denmark, they made a deliberate decision to spend only one third of every dollar on institutional care, and two thirds of every dollar on a vibrant and growing home care system. And it was broad. And this has had a massive effect on, on how they look after people. And you see this in other European countries, because they are older than ours, right? We are still a relatively young population, but that's going to change. And, you know, I've already given you some of the stats on that. We have to start addressing these key challenges. It would be nice if we actually said, guess what? Five years down the road, when people are, we are looking at a higher percentage of of elderly people, it's going to be too late. We have to start saying, we have to start doing what Denmark's done, look at spending more money in home care and try to keep our families intact, however we can do that with tax credits, uh, with more funding, with, as you said, Tom, you know, neighborhood watches, community supports. This, it should be all hands to the pump now in terms of saying the future is staring us in the face. We better start thinking as, as a whole sector, what we're going to do here
4: and govern in a way that we're collecting data and knowing that we're moving the needle. But I just wanted to comment on your comment before Carly, if someone that is high risk and it's not all seniors, cause that's a little bit of ages and there, there are certain ones that are, are, are more prone and more frail. Um, if someone does end up in the acute care system and emerges and should not be an emerge should not be an emerge. The acute care system is, should not be the acute care system. In other words, There are senior or frailty specific things that could be provided both on their route or pre, even making a decision to come to emerge, or maybe the emerge goes to them. And there should be team members that are multidiscipline that are alerted when they come. Many people end up in emerge because their caregiver at home either is absent or has to be away, or they don't feel they have the tools to do it. So suddenly you start to say, hmm. If I could equip the eMERGE team or that multidisciplinary team that gets alerted when that individual who we know well shows up in eMERGE to get there right away and say, you know what? Maybe they need meals on wheels for the next week. Mm-hmm. And to actually empower them to make that decision 24-7 so that you're governing a whole ecosystem, you could save the system lots of money. We we recently did a, a study for Covenant in Alberta, which is the largest Catholic provider in Canada um, and have a bunch of home care and long-term care and, and acute care facilities, but, you know, did a, um, an economic analysis. If you did, for the frail seniors in Alberta, integrated care in the home, um, you could save billions of dollars on institutional care downstream. It takes a little while to get that back, but back to Sue's good point. Denmark's learned that that way. Um, we just need to think differently. The only last comment on this topic: I once went to visit the uh, Martha Stewart Center for Living, which I think is great. It um, called Living because it, it was it's a senior centric outpatient and emerge at Mount Sinai, New York, and they had teams that could be mobilized to go into people's homes for those high risk frail seniors that they know they were aging at home that could visit them regularly and make sure they're getting the interventions they need and are connected to Mm -hmm. acute care, the emergent primary care.
3: I love that example. Thanks for sharing that. We have a ton of questions coming in, so I'll pivot to some of those so we can make sure we get to as many as possible. Um, I really like this one. If each of you could implement one thing um, to address some of these challenges we're talking about today in the delivery of home care in the community, what would it be? Amy, go ahead.
5: Carly, I'll, I'll jump in, and I'm actually going to deviate a little bit from your core question and talk about another lever that we haven't discussed yet, and that is employers. of caregivers are working caregivers, either part or full time. So there's a really important societal component and and a critical role that employers play in all of this. How do we develop caregiver friendly workplaces? How do we implement policy that enables people to be successful, to be retained at work and still fulfill their caregiving responsibilities? If we truly want as a society, for our population to be able to age in place, for for our parents and then ourselves to be able to do that, then we have to enable these caregivers, the vast majority of whom are working, to balance work and care. And we know that 40% of working caregivers are worried that they will either have to quit their job or they will lose their job specifically because of their caregiving responsibilities. And so there's an important dialogue to have there with both employers and working caregivers. Employers can consider caregiver days, like sick days, flexible timing. Obviously, this depends on the particular context and the type of work that people do. But we've talked about this in many different contexts, including things like construction, where you might think it's impossible, but there's still things that can be done. And then we can also empower caregivers to have conversations with their employers about how they think they can best balance work and care. So I think that's an important conversation given that on our call today, we have people who have teams and organizations that they're overseeing and asking themselves, what would I want as a caregiver? What's possible for me as an employer? And how do we become that caregiver-friendly workplace? I think if we truly want the vast majority of care that's happening at home to be successful, we need to consider that aspect of, of, of the scenario.
1: You know, I think Amy makes a tremendously important point. Like nothing uh, can be scaled up any faster uh, in any part of the health care system than home care. We, we are fast to, to stabilize and scale up. It's home care is agile. It can be adopted to meet local community needs. Like if you had a big factory where you had a lot of employees and you had all, a, lot, a lot of the caregiver burden going on inside, we could be supportive of that. But home care is the quickest and the most effective way to give people the care they they need and relieve a lot of the societal pressure that you're talking about, Amy. And uh, that it can be done in a matter of months. It's it's unlike Institutional care, and I have nothing against hospitals, I have a long, long history of working at St. Joe's and Hamilton, very proud previous employer. Um, But unlike institutional care, as you said, Amy, home care is fast. We can gear up fast. It's someone in a car driving to your home. It's somebody meeting you at a clinic. Uh, it, It is... It is someone on a bus coming to you. Uh, we know that it's it's the skill set that we that is embedded in the person. And as a good friend and a long-term advocate of mine, a friend of mine used to say, you know, people have a bed at home. We don't need to build institutions for people to just go and sleep in. What we need to do is capitalize on the home. As the place of care, it's the nexus of care, and we need to wrap that care around the home, and then wrap it around, like you say, the employer and the employee, because it's the employees who are the caregivers. And I don't even like calling them informal; they're formal caregivers as well. They do some, I guess, peripheral care in many, in some cases, but in a lot of ways, they're not. Families are families need support. Both through the pub a greater a greater growing publicly funded system, more access to a, a, a family funded system, so they we can relieve the pressure. Otherwise, we're going to see people coming in with mental health problems because they're so distressed about their moms or dads.
4: Love that comment about formal, and that gets back to my point of maybe we should consider both paying them and training them. And this is an opportunity for higher education. Um, And we did some thinking with Bow Valley College in Calgary just about this sort of thinking, like, how, how do we equip that workforce, which is so valuable for Canada, to be able to support home care with professionals like Sue Leeds? So something to think about, but I'm cognizant we didn't answer your question, Carly, about the one thing to do. And I can think of a million things to do, but at the end of the day, I would like us to speak with one voice. And and there is a group, SE Health and and Covenant Health in Alberta, that have mobilized a whole bunch of people across Canada to create a document called Courage. But age, part of courage is bolded, um, to speak with one voice. And, and, And in my mind, What we need is sort of federal standards of what the expectations are around um, care at home and what people should expect. And and to me, then some targets, Uh, i like to call them OKRs, objectives and key results. And I really like what I said, but probably because I said it, um, it's around um, focusing on something big, like an objective like loneliness and, and, and bringing that down because all of these things that we would implement are all many of the things that we've been talking about.
3: Thank you so much for that. Um, This questions for Amy and Tom specifically. Um, Can you comment on what you feel uh, or whether the shift the governments have done in the last few months, um, specifically the enhanced role of Ontario health teams, uh, if that gives you comfort that they're going to be sort of using and activating caregivers uh, more in the delivery of home care?
4: Go ahead, Amy, if you want.
3: You
5: know, one of the things uh, we've certainly appreciated about the role of Ontario health teams is that they've identified caregivers as essential care partners on those teams. And so we've been really pleased to work with OHTs on how to successfully engage caregivers and to do so throughout the process. I think the thing that caregivers want consistently from those kinds of experience is, is to see, see the downstream effect. And Tom has highlighted so many uh, great examples and comments around integrated care. And so my hope is that from the initiatives that are happening, that caregivers start to have a more consistent experience and that they don't face so many barriers around either system navigation and reliability of availability of services. So I think having caregivers at the table for those collaborative conversations and collaborative design of approaches going forward is a great place to start. And uh, if those voices are continued to be reflected in the planning and implementation, I think that uh, will point us in the right direction.
4: So, and just to add on that, I I think the intent is fantastic. And because it's really moving us away from hospital focus not that hospitals aren't important. I, I do care about hospitals, but but the proof, the challenge is going to be in the implementation and 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 that joint governance and 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 the real challenge that everyone gets nervous about is you got a big goliath in the room, in the hospital, and how how can we share across partners that are used to not getting as much. And the only other worry I have is, and I, I know Ontario Health is going to deal with this in the ministry, is is we're going to have so many bespoke Ontario Health teams. With different objectives, and and back to my point, I, I'd like to see us all aligning around what are the big objectives that we're we're holding those OHTs accountable for delivering on. Again, loneliness, home care, um, regular check ins for people that are over seventy five, uh, whatever it is, and, and just on the check ins. The last thing I say, you know, in Canada we've or at least in Ontario we've gotten rid of a lot of postal workers that come directly to our house in the island of Jersey. They've encompassed. They've incorporated them into checking people that are elderly and checking in on them and dealing with that connectivity. So it's just something to think about how we bring that community together to work on it. It's it.
3: such a great point to leave it on Tom. Thank you so much, and thanks everyone for such a fantastic discussion today.
0: Thanks very much, Carly, and thank you very much uh, for the panelists. On behalf of the Kane Club of Toronto, I want to first thank Minister Williams for your helpful, hopeful message. We know that the Ford government takes these issues very seriously. Your government's recent funding announcements and supports will make a real difference for Ontarians that need it. And to our dis- distinguished panelists, Amy, Tom and Sue, we appreciate your care and compassion for caregivers, home care and our fragile health care system. We are comforted in knowing that your leadership and advocacy are facilitating positive change. We wish you continued success in your efforts. Carly, thank you for expertly moderating this important and timely discussion. We hope to see you again soon and wish you all the best with your important work. Now, before we close, I want to invite you to our remaining events of the calendar year. On Monday, December 4th, uh, the President and CEO of Desjardins Group, Guy Cormier, will join us. And we conclude our 2023 uh, event calendar with the Bank of Canada Governor, Tiff Macklin. You may have heard of him. Uh, He's coming on Friday, December 15th. So please visit our website for more information and to purchase your tickets. Let me conclude by again thanking our AV uh, supplier, VVC Live, for its consistently great support. Members and guests, thanks again for being with us today. We hope to see you again soon. Enjoy the rest of your day.